This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. The word became flesh and the light shined among us. Suffering anguish, despised and rejected, bearing our sins, my Redeemer is He. The hands that healed nations stretched out on a tree and took the nails for me. Living He loved me, dying He saved me, buried He carried. My sins far away, rising he justified, freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day. One day the grave could conceal him. Jesus is my 
carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, a glorious day, a glorious day, glorious day, a glorious Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Cammy. And thank you for just being here, um, anticipating God continuing to, to work today. Open your Bibles, please, to the New Testament book of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It began early one Sunday morning, and today, 2,000 years later, we call it Palm Sunday. Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, he singled out two of his disciples, gave them some very specific instructions, sent them into a nearby village to carry out a special errand. This would lead to a remarkable day. Here's how Luke records it, Luke 19, verse 29. As they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. And just so you can kind of get uh, a picture here, I'll go to the left screen. Um, this is the, the temple area. So they came down this hill on over here to Bethphage, or some pronounce it Bethphage, on over to to Bethany, that kind of gives you a, a, a picture, a map of, of how they walked. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you, as you enter it, you will see a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs it. So they went, found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying our colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. Now, now understand this situation here before we finish reading. Here would be today's equivalent to this situation. It would be like two strangers going into your driveway, getting into your car that has the keys in it, and the only explanation for uh, taking your car is that they say the Lord needs it. And you just letting it happen without coming unglued. But the owner did. That's one of the uh, Palm Sunday miracles. Verse 35. So they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Then the crowd spread out their coats on the road ahead of Jesus. As they reached the palace where the road started down from the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, history records that this was not the first time someone had come riding into Jerusalem with fanfare. Because approximately 200 years before Christ, the land of Israel had come under control of Syria and their king, Antiochus III. 
Well, when Antiochus III died, his son, Antiochus the Fourth, yeah, or more commonly known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes, took the throne and immediately outlawed the Jewish religion and ordered the Jewish people to worship Greek gods. Well, after this edict, in, in 168 B.C., his soldiers descended upon Jerusalem and, and massacred thousands of people, desecrated the temple by doing two things. First of all, they built an altar to Zeus, whom they believed was the god of the sky. But then the second thing that they did, and you've heard of this, it was even more detestable. They sacrificed a pig within the sacred walls of the holy temple. Well, this began a horrible period in the, in the history of the Jewish people, and, and all copies of, of the scriptures that they could find were destroyed, and, and those people who had those copies of scriptures in their possess, possession, they were slaughtered. Two years later, in, in 166 B.C., a Jewish man came along with the name of Judah Maccabee, or also known as Judas Maccabeus, he was nicknamed the Hammer. Almost sounds like a rapper. <laughs> he began to rally an army of Jewish men to his side to fight against the Syrians. And over the course of the next two years, through, through hit-and-run attacks, or back in the 70s and 80s, we were to call it guerrilla warfare. Today, we would call it terrorism. They were able to drive the Syrians from Jerusalem. And because of that victory in 163 B.C., four generations before Christ came along, the victorious Judah Maccabee entered Jerusalem riding on a massive stallion, and the people began to shout and wave palm branches and cheer, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many thought, Messiah has finally come. Well, during this time, they cleansed the temple from the desecration of, of the idol Zeus, as well as the pig that had been sacrificed there a couple of years prior. They burned incense, lit a huge menorah that burned for eight days. And to this day, just a little bit of history, to celebrate their freedom, our Jewish friends commemorate the eight days of the Festival of Lights, or better known to us as Hanukkah. Well, not too long after Judah Maccabee's grand entrance into Jerusalem, he was killed in battle, and the earthly kingdom that he was trying to establish was over. Now, fast forward from Judah Maccabee almost four generations. And on this particular day that, that we just read about, that we've been singing about in Luke chapter 19, Jesus also came riding into Jerusalem. And almost everything in, in Luke's account parallels what had occurred with Judah Maccabee nearly 200 years prior. There were the throng shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There was excitement in the air that the crowd once again had their hopes that this was the Messiah. But whereas Judah Maccabee entered the city of Jerusalem on a powerful, massive stallion that showed the majesty showed majesty and authority. Jesus, on the other hand, rode into Jerusalem that day on a donkey. Which an amazing prophecy that Pastor Darren read made about 500 years earlier in Zechariah chapter 9 clarifies that this was actually 
the colt of a donkey. Let me just read that verse again. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Israel. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. Back to our scripture in Luke 19. When it says that Jesus told two of his disciples to go into that village and get a colt, those two disciples must have wondered what Jesus had in mind. Because nowhere in the four Gospels that, that chronicle the life of Christ is it ever mentioned that Christ rode on an animal to get from one place to another. He rode in boats across the Sea of Galilee. But unless I've overlooked a scripture, to my knowledge, when it came to inland travel, the references are always of Jesus walking. And during his three years of ministry, he must have walked hundreds, maybe thousands of miles up and down and, and across the rugged land. And those of you that have been to Israel, you know it is a rugged land. We now call it the Holy Land. But anyway, Jesus gave this unusual command to go into the village to get a colt that had never been ridden. And, and even though the disciples carried out this strange request, I'm sure they wondered, what was Jesus going to do with his donkey? Not, not to mention, they had to think, you know, this seems kind of risky taking somebody's donkey, even if it was just to borrow it for a day. Well, the disciples bring the colt to Jesus, and, and Jesus readies himself to, to ride that colt into Jerusalem. But he must have been a bit troubled, because he knew what he was about to face. He knew that, yes, there would be the cheering that, that particular day. His popularity was at an all-time high. But he also knew, along with the cheering, there would be some jeering. Because not everybody, especially the religious leaders, were not in love with this new rabbi that seemed to continually break the centuries-old traditions and laws. And In fact, he came across kind of as a maverick that seemed more interested in following the will of his father rather than following their religious traditions and rules. Now, during this Palm Sunday event that began the eight-day Passover festival that the Jews observed to remember their deliverance from Egyptian slavery, Jews from all around gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate. Even some non-Jewish celebrities would make their way to Jerusalem. For example, Pontius Pilate, the, the, the Roman governor, would go to Jerusalem to occupy the Antonia Fortress, which was a military fortress built by Herod the Great in 19 B.C. Let me just show you again a, a map here. Right over here, this is the Temple Mount area. Here's the Antonia Fortress. For those of you that have been in, in Israel, there in, in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount, you probably had that pointed out to you. Um, Pontius Pilate would have had his um, you know, full complement of elite Roman soldiers ever ready and willing to suppress any attempted uprising that might occur. And then Herod Antipas, the one, remember, who had beheaded John the Baptist? he probably would have made his way into the area. He was the tetrarch or the ruler of, of Galilee and Perea, and his arrival would have been marked with great pomp and circumstance, undoubtedly occupying the palace of his late father, Herod the Great. So there was the Antonia Fortress, and then over here was the palace that probably uh, Herod Antipas would have been um, staying at. Well, in the presence of all the important dignitaries that made their entrance with power and pageantry, all of a sudden, here came Jesus entering Jerusalem. 
not riding in a fancy gold-covered chariot led by purebred horses, not even riding on the back of a massive stallion. Rather, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. Try to picture the scene in your mind. He came riding on the back of a donkey's colt. And I thought about this. Since this was a colt, it was probably young enough and small enough to where Jesus' feet probably touched, just about touched and dragged the ground as the animal walked into Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine the chit-chat as they waited for Jesus to ride by? And no doubt some of the conversations were centered around Lazarus. Maybe they said, have you heard the news? Lazarus, you know, he lives down the road a little bit there in Bethany. He he got really sick and died and, and was buried in a cave. He was there long enough to where, you know, if you were raised with the King James Bible, remember the words, Lazarus, he stinketh. Remember those words? But of course, the chit-chat that day didn't end with Lazarus in the grave because this teacher from Nazareth called out, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. And so some people might have said, yeah, you know, I know this to be true. This isn't just false rumor because I was walking down the road the other day and I happened to see Lazarus and, and even talked with him. He looked great. And so on that day, the crowd was probably excited. They were ready to greet this rabbi with the waving of palm branches and the shouting of Hosanna to the king. Well, as Jesus began his grand entrance, I wonder if his eyes didn't scan the crowd. And as he did so, he probably saw the mixture of expressions on their faces. He saw the ones who loved him. Perhaps Bartimaeus was there. You don't remember Jesus had healed Bartimaeus from his blindness, rescued him from a life of begging. And, And so it had been a while since Bartimaeus had seen Jesus as healer. And so more than likely, Bartimaeus was there excited to see him again. Perhaps Zacchaeus was there. Remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. I'm just kind of making this up as I go along. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. But Zacchaeus had now made peace with God and made restitution to those he had wronged. And so I wonder if this wee little man was also in the crowd excited to to see the man that had changed his life. And then I wonder if the lepers were there. Remember the lepers, their their skin had been cleansed and healed by Jesus. And baby Jairus' daughter was there. She was the one who had died but had been brought back to life again, again by this teacher. Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene were probably all there. They'd been changed by Jesus. But not only in the crowd were those who loved Jesus, but there were also those skeptics. You have skeptics in every crowd. People waiting for him to say one wrong word. These were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Jesus had gained so much popularity. And and again, didn't always follow their religious traditions. And so they followed him around. Not to support him. Not to cheer him on. But rather to try to catch him in another act of breaking their sacred traditions. The Romans were there as well for crowd control. Fearing a revolt and watching for any sign of rebellion against Rome. But, but not only do I wonder if Jesus' eyes were scanning the crowd, I, I also wonder if his mind was racing ahead. Does your mind ever do that, just kind of race ahead? Because he knew that on this day he would hear people shout Hosanna, but yet he also knew that in just a few days he would be hearing those same voices from those same people cry out, crucify him. And then think about this one. 
On top of all of that, on his mind was the fact that looming just over the horizon, on the hill of Golgotha, was a cross. A cross built for him. A cross that was ready to consume him. Well, as Jesus began his entrance, and let me just show you a map here again. You got the Mount of Olives, kind of the high point there. You got the Temple Mount right over here. And there's this kind of deep divide right there. And here's Gehenna Valley. This was kind of where they burned a lot of the trash and the it was kind of a dump. In fact, those of you that went with us this last time to Israel, our, our guide, every time we would cross over this little valley, because they call it the Valley of Hell, so he would say, okay, we're going to count noses after we get back, see if anybody dropped off into hell. Um, but anyway, so they came from the Mount of Olives, and they wound their way down, and again, those of you that were with us, we walked that trail, and then they would make their way up to the temple As he made his entrance, his disciples were with him, and I, I, I was wondering how they reacted to all of this. I imagine that Judas was basking in all of the attention because this was exactly what Judas had wanted. He wanted Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. Finally, Jesus was getting with the program. He had been way too passive about this for the past three years. It's about time that Jesus got in gear. And then Peter was there, and I can imagine that he walked with his chest kind of expanded, enjoying the cheers of the crowd, all the while thinking to himself, maybe it was worth it after all to leave our fishnets and boats. We're about to hit a big time. But, but also, maybe Peter, just for precaution, had one hand on his sword in case something went wrong. You know, Peter had kind of gained a reputation for that. Possibly there was Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. His nature was to be a bit, bit skeptical. And so maybe he held back a little bit, not knowing what to make of all of this. And then Andrew. Uh, you know, we, we never find Andrew with a prominent role in, in a big crowd. He was most comfortable bringing people to Jesus one by one. And so these massive crowds were probably out of his comfort zone, maybe a little bit overwhelming to him. Well, what about James and John? They were there. Remember, their nicknames were the Sons of Thunder. Their mom, and we talked about this two or three weeks ago, mom was the one that went to Jesus asking for one son to sit on the right and be the number two man in his kingdom and another one to sit on the left to be the number three man. And so I, want, I, was, you know, I wonder if they were, were thinking, did Jesus remember mommy's request? But anyway, with only a few exceptions, that huge crowd was excited. It was an atmosphere of celebration as Jesus walked through that cheering crowd. It was a big day. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the whole procession stopped. It came to a dead stop. Kind of like what happens during rush hour traffic at the Triangle in Kansas City. Nobody was moving. And so maybe the people way back in the crowd that couldn't see what was happening, they began saying, what's the holdup? Come on, buddy, move it. 
They were getting impatient with the delay. But the people who were standing near Jesus could see what the holdup was. It was Jesus. Jesus himself. He had stopped the parade. And they saw something strange. And just reading between the lines here, they possibly saw his body begin to shake. And maybe at first they thought he was laughing. I mean, laughter would have fit the atmosphere. It was such a fun day. Maybe they thought that one of his friends had cracked a joke. But, but they looked again and they couldn't believe it. Jesus wasn't laughing. He was crying. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> Palm Sunday, Jesus crying? He, he was crying on this day of celebration now, now scripture tells us that jesus had reacted emotionally many times when he saw the poor the bible says he had pity on them when when he saw the hungry he had empathy for them when he saw people sinning his heart broke for them when he saw the sick he had compassion on them jesus was a man that showed many different emotions but but the bible only documents two instances where jesus cried you know one very well he cried at the grave of lazarus remember the verse jesus wept we call it the shortest verse in the Bible. But here on Palm Sunday was the other occasion where the Bible documents Jesus crying. And most of the time, we read right past this because the emphasis of Palm Sunday is always celebration. But Scripture records on this very first Palm Sunday, Jesus As he looked at the city of Jerusalem, he saw the masses of humanity as he realized the emptiness of their souls, as he realized that they had not understood the purpose of his coming to earth, the Bible says he wept. In fact, let, just let the emotion settle down over you for a moment. I, I did that in my office this past week. As I read this verse, let the moment settle down over you. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city... He wept. And in my study this past week, I learned a couple of things that were just awesome. There, there are a couple of different words in the original Greek language that we translate to cry or to weep. And, and one is a word that means to cry silently. But not this word in this verse. Th this particular word in the Greek means he sobbed. In fact, as I, as I research this word, it carries the meaning that he wailed aloud, almost uncontrollably. So as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he sobbed. He sobbed and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. So why did Jesus sob on this day of celebration? He, he sobbed because the people had eyes, but they couldn't see past their traditions and preconceived ideas. He, he sobbed because the people had ears, but they couldn't hear and understand the gospel that Jesus had present, been presenting to them over the past three years. And the fact that they waved palm branches didn't mean a thing. 
because that is exactly what their great-grandparents had done when Judah Maccabee and his men had overthrown the Syrian oppressors and reestablished worship in the temple. They had waved palm branches. And by doing the same thing, they were showing that Jesus, they expected Jesus to be another warlord, another general, one who would lead them to overthrow the Romans. But Jesus didn't come for that purpose. He came not to lead them in war, but to lead them in a more excellent way, the way of love. He said, love your enemies. That's hard. Pray for those who persecute you. He said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles. But those people who listened to him must have thought, oh, those are beautiful words. It all sounds good. But surely doesn't, Jesus doesn't mean that we're to love Rome. We can't love Rome. They're the enemy. But that's exactly what he was saying. Jesus was saying, love even Rome, because Rome with her mighty army had seen the power of the sword, but Rome had not seen the power of love. And so there as he sat on that borrowed donkey with the procession stopped, Jesus looked over Jerusalem, wept, sobbed, shook. And the next couple of verses give further reason that Jesus wept. In verse 43, it says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of time of God's coming to you. So what's this saying? Well, as Jesus approached the majestic temple, that soared, and this was so interesting, soared roughly 15 stories above the Kidron Valley. It was an area that was 500 yards long, 400 yards wide. The outer court of the temple was nearly the size of 48 college basketball courts. As Jesus saw this magnificent structure, he wept, he sobbed uncontrollably because he was able to look ahead and see that not too many years in the future, only about 40 years or so, the armies of Titus would surround the holy city. And when they did so, some of the Jewish people in the city would begin to desert the city and and try to escape out of it to save their lives. And, and, And this was so interesting. I learned this this past week as well, that Josephus, the historian, reports that It began to be rumored that those deserters, you know, whenever they surrounded the city, those in the city started deserting and and trying to save their lives. But it was rumored that they had swallowed gold coins to take some of their wealth with them. So here's what ended up happening. The Arab and the Syrian troops, when they heard about that, here's what they did. And, And Josephus says, they went to those Israeli deserters and one night... No less than 2,000 people were ripped open to see if they had gold coins in their stomachs. But this was only the beginning of suffering. Because eventually the huge temple stones would be torn down one by one and the city leveled and, and thousands of bodies would lie in the streets and blood would run in the ditches and hundreds of thousands of other people would cry because they were starving to death while Titus waited for Jerusalem to surrender. Jesus saw all of that and so... As he did, the Bible says, he wept. 
Now, at another time earlier, both Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus had looked down upon the city and had lamented. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I long to gather your children together as hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And and on that particular occasion, it appears that Jesus was able to keep his emotions in check, but not on this day. On this day, as he saw the crowd, as he saw the future destruction of his people, he began to weep. That was 2,000 years ago. Let's fast forward to today. We're not in Jerusalem, but we're in Eldorado Springs. And today is Palm Sunday. It's a day of rejoicing and celebration. And just like the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we find ourselves in the presence of Jesus. And I wonder what his reaction is as he looks down on us right now. As he looks down on us and, and, and sees the heartache caused by meth in our community, I wonder if he's weeping. Just try to picture him looking down from the heavens. As he looks down, I I wonder if he, as he sees lives torn apart by alcohol, I wonder if he's weeping. As he sees families that are torn apart by divorce and kids that are abused and passed around from household to household, I wonder if Jesus is weeping. As he sees rampant poverty that causes people to live in homes that are unsafe, I wonder if he's weeping. As As Jesus sees people in our town, you know, right here in the center of the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt, the most religious part of our nation, as he sees people on Sunday, the Lord's Day, going here and there, doing this and that, never taking time to honor him, do you think that maybe causes him to weep? And then I also wondered, what is Jesus' reaction as he looks at us today, us right here? We're not talking about outside this building, but us right here is... I wonder what his reaction is. As someone said, sometimes we work at our play and play at our worship. Is, is he weeping as he looks at our church? And, and then bringing it really, really close. As Jesus looks down into your heart and my heart, what does he see right now? Does he see sin? Does he see unforgiveness? Does, he, does what he sees in our heart cause him to weep? So today... As we kick off Passion Week, yes, today, Palm Sunday is a glorious Sunday. Uh, Yes, Easter Sunday next week will even be more glorious, and and we have so much to celebrate. But let's not forget that leading up to the celebration of Palm Sunday and the celebration of the empty tomb and the celebration of the forgiveness of sins, let's not forget that Jesus wept. He wept over the lostness. He wept over the suffering and the heartache and the pain that he knew was just down the road, and And so may I just leave us with a couple of practical suggestions uh, as we wrap up this and go into our time of uh, celebrating through baptism. But first thing I want to just say is let's make sure that our celebration this Easter season is not hollow and and fickle and, and shallow as it was for the Palm Sunday crowd. Because on Palm Sunday, they would shout Hosanna, but a few short days later, they would shout crucify. So are we as Christians grounded? Are we grounded or are we just kind of surface fly by night Christians? Secondly, as we uh, celebrate this season, let's look at our community in the same way that Jesus looks at our community. And 
let's not overlook the suffering, the, you know, the drug use, the poverty, the lostness, and go with a happy-go-lucky business-as-usual attitude. Could we have the same love and the same compassion that Jesus did? You know, I, I, I believe that sometimes pastors are so negative and, and they miss out the celebration. But I, I, I want us to just temper our celebration because I don't want us to just celebrate so much that we forget that our community needs Jesus. They need us. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. Amen? You know, Jesus could have directly impacted people and he really didn't need us. But that's the way he set things up to where we're his hands and feet. And we're the ones that he works through. And so... I pray that uh, during this Easter season that we will be just showing the love of Christ to our community, to our lost community. So could we just pray right now that God would use us? Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you for your word. Thank you for Palm Sunday, just the celebration. It gives us an excuse to celebrate, not that we need one, but Father, we thank you that uh, we can celebrate. But also there is just kind of a reality check that in that celebration, even, even you, Jesus, as, as you were hearing uh, just the, the throngs of people celebrate and you saw the waving of palm branches, yet you saw ahead, you saw ahead to the cross that it would consume you. You, you, you saw all around the people that were so lost and some didn't have a clue and Lord, the suffering that would take place 40 years later when Titus would just surround uh, the holy city. And God, you saw all of that, the pain and the misery and the bloodshed. And God, you see that today and help us to see it as well, that you would help us to not just be oblivious to the suffering, that we would not just be oblivious during this Easter season, that we would not just personally celebrate, but God, in our celebration, that we would share the love of Christ with other people. Lord, as we lead up to Good Friday and as we lead up to Easter, Father, I just pray that it would be a glorious weekend. And Lord, I believe what would, be, what would make it even more glorious is not just a celebration, not just a praise God, but what would make it more glorious is that people would come to know Jesus Christ because I believe that's what would please you the most. So Lord, this week I pray that we would just look at our city. And Father, there may be those moments we just need to weep. Lord, as we look at our families, there may be a moment that we just need to weep. So God, I, I ask that this, this Easter week would be so amazing, that maybe unprecedented, that we'd celebrate, yes, but we would celebrate some new names and glory. Now, Father, as we transition into this time of celebrating young people that have given their hearts to Jesus, Father... I just pray that it would be so special to us, to our families. I pray this in Jesus' name. And again, everybody said, Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.